And now hear our gospel reading for this Christmas day, John chapter one. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we, th we give you thanks today for this wonderful gift of the incarnation of your son. We ask your spirit to guide us into a proper celebration and understanding of these things so that we might rejoice fully in you and preach the gospel with every word and action. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, there is a specific catalog of secular movies and TV specials which has grown to accompany the celebration of Christmas. These movies and these specials have become as much a part of our cultural celebration of Christmas as, as trees and wreaths and, and other things that we come to associate with Christmas. A few of these things, a few of these specials have been around since the 1960s so that people who watched them for the first time growing up now have had children of their own. They have grown up watching them. And now even to the third generation, grandchildren of the people who saw these things aired the first time, uh, they're watching them with their grandchildren. Two of these specials in particular stand out to me as not only being iconic, but extremely similar in their themes and in their messages. The first one is A Charlie Brown Christmas from 1965, and the second is How the Grinch Stole Christmas from 1966. These two things came out a year apart. Both of them have been around more than 50 years. Both of them have memorable music. Both of them are grounded in a uh, popular, beloved, larger body of work. You have Charles Schultz's uh, Peanuts, Peanuts comics. You have Dr. Seuss's books. And both of these things have basically the same message. Materialism is bad, and you can celebrate Christmas without stuff because Christmas really isn't about stuff. That's, that's the message. That's the takeaway of both of those specials. Charlie Brown's shabby little tree is much better, really, than your big, beautiful tree that you decorated with your family. You should be ashamed of yourself that you have this big, beautiful tree in your house. And Charlie Brown's sister and her friends talk about what they want for Christmas, but they're really being greedy and selfish. The Who's down in Whoville, they're all prepared for a great feast with their obnoxious instruments and their roast beast. But if you take that all away from them, they'll still hold hands and sing a nonsense song out in the snow around a tree. You can't take that away from them. They're still gonna do that. And that's after all what Christmas is all about, singing about nonsense out in the snow. 
The Charlie Brown show, I think, deserves some credit. Linus reads from the uh, Gospel of Luke, and I, I like that. That's good. But the overall message of these things seems to be that the more disconnected you are from the material world, the better and more pious and more morally pristine your celebration of Christmas is. I'm not sure what was going on in the culture. I'm not sure what Christmas was like in the mid-60s that someone somewhere believed that the nation's children needed this animated one-two punch to teach them this lesson or whether anybody really believes that we need these annual reminders. These lessons have been repeated every year for more than 50 years. Have they effectively changed anything other than perhaps making us feel this little twinge of guilt fulfilling our shopping carts in December. And by the way, when you fill your shopping cart in December, ordinarily you're buying stuff to give away, right? You're buying stuff for other people. You're being self-sacrificial. And yet uh, there's this, this narrative that we're being greedy and selfish and materialistic by, by, doing, by doing these things. Um, well, I, I don't want to overthink it. And if you enjoy these movies, that's fine. I think they're fine. They've got some redeeming qualities. We're probably going to play the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack as we open our presents this afternoon. We're going to, but it's fine. It's fine. It's good. But if you just isolate what they're saying, and that's what I'm talking about, is, is it a Christian message that's being taught? Or is this a message that could just as easily, easily be communicated by a Marxist or a or a Buddhist? Is the real message of Christmas something about departure from the material world? Is true contentment and rejoicing found not in toys and food, but in divorcing ourselves from physical things and ascending to some non-corporeal uh, spiritual enlightenment, some, some spiritual place of contentment apart from creation? Is that, is that what we're after? Now, certainly, I need to qualify this. There is a real and grave error called materialism. There's this temptation to find comfort and pleasure in the created thing alone without giving any praise to the creator, to live as if there's no spiritual realm, no future judgment, to idolize wealth and status in a way that you equate the riches of the world with God's pleasure. Now, that's, that's, there's a real temptation to do that. Materialism is real, and it's wicked. And everything that Peter said last night stands. Covetousness is idolatry. And there's a covetousness that gets engendered by materialism that is never satisfied. It's never content. And the prophets and Jesus together, they all have scalding warnings for those whose faith lies in their riches or, or whose faith lies in their worldly influence or power. And God promises to overthrow all of that in the day of judgment. So uh, we don't give a, a, a rubber stamp and say, yeah, materialism is good. Not at all. But it would be a gross overcorrection to say then that what Jesus is after and the proper application of the gospel is a complete separation from the material world. The further you get away from the material world, the further you get away from the enjoyment of God's gifts, the better off you are. In fact, much the opposite. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is God's embrace of the material world and of humanity. In the incarnation, God reaffirms his pleasure in his creation. Remember in the days of creation, he says, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is very good. And, and God reaffirms 
his pleasure in his created world in the incarnation, and now he's keeping his promise to redeem it. In John's gospel, we just read that the eternal word of God has been made flesh in a specific time in human history, at a specific place on earth. God gave a real young virgin woman named Mary a child, and his name was Jesus. The birth of this man into the world was God entering his creation physically. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, the Word, has become man. He has become one of us, which means that the God of creation, the God of the Bible, is not some general, vague, abstract, divine presence. He's not a concept. He's not a principle, but rather he has presented himself to us in Jesus as a man, a human being embodying the personal love of a personal God. And he carries in his body the experience of being one of us, of being a creature, experiencing the sorrow of the world and the pain of the world. And all of this he bears with him to the cross. Nothing quite takes that hazy, sentimental glow off of Christmas when we reflect on the reason why Jesus came. He comes as a child to do battle with Satan and to do uh, combat, to undertake a warfare against all these things that bring us misery, to save us from our sins. The incarnation is so full of wonder and mystery that we can hardly conceive of it, much less express it in words. When God gave himself to us in the man Jesus, he didn't simply pick a man out of Adam's race to represent him. No, he becomes a man living among Adam's race. And then when he ascends to the right hand of the father, he's still a man. He's a glorified man. He's a resurrected man, but he is a man, which means that now there is a resurrected glorified man on the throne over all creation. A man sits enthroned over the cosmos and all of heaven and earth is under his domain. The one whose body bears the marks of iron nails, whose side still bears the mark of a spear, whose brow was pierced by thorns. He sits over creation. Now, this is the same man who entered the created world as a baby. He laid in a manger. He cried. He was hungry. He learned how to walk. He learned how to speak. He learned how to obey and submit to his earthly father and mother. He learned how to love his brothers and sisters. He learned how to sit still in the synagogue and listen. He learned how to work with his hands. He learned self-discipline over his human nature without sin, without error. He ate the Passover. He went to the temple on the feast days. And if you think this is strange to talk about Jesus as growing and learning and submitting, understand this is exactly the way the scriptures speak about Jesus, uh, that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And that always leaves me scratching my head. How does the second person of the Trinity grow in wisdom? How does he grow in favor? And yet the scriptures say that he did. 
that the human nature of Jesus, his, 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 his um, uh, humanity had to learn submission. And the author of Hebrews says that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And so in his body, he was baptized with real water and, and he was touched and touched those that he loved. He touched the blind men. He touched lepers. He was touched by the woman with an issue of blood. Mary Magdalene touched him and, um, and, and anointed his head with oil. He invited Thomas to touch him. He, in every one of these ways, physically identified himself with his creation and with his creatures, with the people he loved. Jesus didn't come and walk three inches off the floor. He didn't float wherever he went. Uh, he didn't come as a spirit or an angel. He was a man incarnate, which means that when he re-enters the presence of his father and he goes up into the throne room of heaven, he doesn't go by himself and he doesn't do it by himself. The way he has joined himself with humanity means that now when he goes up to the presence of the father, he takes us and our humanity with him. His people reign with him over all creation. Ephesians 2 says this, uh, God has raised us up together with Christ and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so by his spirit, he dwells in his people and with his people and his people dwell with him and with his father. And all of this is possible because of the extraordinary glorious, amazing, mighty act of God in the incarnation, in the word being made flesh and dwelling among us full of grace and truth. Now, when God does this with Jesus, it's not as if suddenly God the Father is taking a different tact with regard to the world and with regard to humanity. This is not God suddenly taking a different direction with creation. Finally, now with Jesus, he cares about the world that he made. No, the whole story of the Bible from Genesis on is the story of God and his world and the creatures he put on it, most notably man, his creation. The first book, the first chapter of the Bible isn't God all by himself speaking timeless truths. The Bible doesn't start with philosophy. The, the Bible doesn't start with propositions or abstract facts. The first chapter of the Bible is God working on stuff. It's God working on matter, forming the world out of nothing, speaking everything into being. As John said in John chapter one, there is nothing in reality that hasn't been created by God. He has created all of it by the word of his mouth. And he put his spirit into man into man's flesh. He, he, he gives life and he calls man to come and obey him. He wrestles with man. He puts him through his paces. He matures him and puts his name on him. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God is known by how he deals with his creation and with his people. And ultimately in the gospels, he takes on human nature himself. God does not abhor humanity and God does not abhor his creation, but he embraces it to redeem it. So when we consider all that God has done in and through the created world, 
How could we possibly arrive at a position that says, you know what the best way to give thanks for all this is? The best way to show our gratitude for all of God's good gifts is to retreat from the created world and maybe even despise it a little bit. Maybe even to learn how to have contempt for the world and his people. Now, I don't think we would say that out loud. And I think Christians everywhere would agree that the incarnation is vital to the gospel. But the church has still always had to guard against and battle the heresy of Gnosticism. Now, uh, Gnosticism may be one of those words that gets overused, and I'll own that if, if we overuse it. it. Maybe it's because once you figure out what Gnosticism is, you see it everywhere. And, and then it's like everything is, you found a hammer and everything's a nail. Everything is Gnosticism and, and, uh, and, and you're, you, you go after it with the hammer. But this refers to, if you're, not, if you're not used to using this word and if you're not familiar with it, we're referring to the Greek mystery religions that had this philosophy which said that, that there's this um, deep wedge between the world of spirit and the world of created order. And, and so um, to put it simply, the Gnostics believe that all matter is fundamentally evil and the non-material spiritual world is considerably better and to be far preferred. So, so the more spiritual you are, you're going to remove yourself from the material aspects of life, food and drink and comforts and other people, and become more and more spiritual. And actually what's best is to be completely freed from this prison of the body and to become fully spirit. And so over the first couple centuries of the church, Christians picked up on this Greek philosophy and they wrongly believed that this is consistent with the Christian message. And of course, when you adopt that, that creates all kinds of problems with the incarnation. If uh, flesh and all of creation is broken irredeemably and there's nothing to value and nothing um, possibly uh, helpful or good or beautiful about it, then why would Jesus become a man? God, perfect God, could never enter human flesh if that were true. And what does that mean about the future resurrection? That we've been promised glorified bodies. Well, if, if matter is inherently evil, why would we ever look forward to uh, future glorified resurrected bodies? Uh, see, it creates Gnosticism, creates all kinds of problems uh, for the Christian faith. So uh, these things are not compatible. Early on in the early centuries, Gnostic-leaning Christians had to work around the word made flesh, and they had to do mental gymnastics and would say things like, well, Jesus was a spirit, or Jesus was an angel, but certainly not a man. There's no way that God would, would marry himself to human flesh, because to their thinking, creation is bad. Human flesh is bad, and God would never join himself to something that was so corrupt and weak and not worth saving. One Gnostic heretic in the ancient world, he said that Jesus wasn't born of Mary, but the Holy Spirit shined through Mary the way that light shines through a window and created the Spirit, Jesus. And they would say that kind of thing with a straight face. Such was their um, contempt of creation that they would say things like that. 
And so as early as John's first epistle, the church was hard at work to correct this thinking. John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. John says he was a man. We touched him. We embraced him. We ate with him. We drank together. We traveled together. Thomas was invited to put his hand in his side. He was real. He was physical. Even in the, uh, after the resurrection, he was real. He was incarnate. Um, and that was the testimony of the, of the apostles. But despite that, Despite the testimony of the Gospels and the early church fathers and the councils and, and all of them, um, the, the heresy, the error of Gnosticism still persists today. And in fact, in some ways, it's far more pervasive and it's far more dangerous than the error of materialism. Everybody sees materialism for what it is. It's right out in the open. Greed and excess are fairly easy to identify. Even Charlie Brown can see what, you know, materialism. It's, it's easy to see. But Gnosticism, the rejection of God's good creation, which leads inevitably to rejection of the incarnation, which leads to the rejection of the resurrection and the goodness of our own humanity, that's, that's so much more subtle. Uh, um, it sounds so pious on the service. Um, the, the Gnostic won't eat that. He won't drink that. He won't indulge the pleasures of the flesh. The Gnostic is self-disciplined or so he appears. The Gnostic isn't concerned with trivialities and trifles. He's so much more serious. He's so much more erudite. Right living is all about getting your head sorted out, right thoughts and acceptable articulation of those thoughts, separating yourself from inconsequential stuff. But you see, the gospel has never been about just getting your head sorted out. The gospel has never been about God sending us an abstract idea that if we could just figure out this puzzle, then we'll be okay. God doesn't send us propositions. God sends us Jesus, his son, as a man to live in the world as a man and to redeem all of human life and society, to be Lord and King over a people, over all of our lives, over all that we do with our bodies and with his creation. Gnosticism divorces everything from creation, tries to explain away the incarnation, which is why we must fight against it with at least as much strength and fervor and attention as we guard against materialism. So maybe one of our young, talented artists will one day grow up and write and produce the anti-Gnostic television special, the anti-Gnostic Christmas special. Uh, I, the, the Who's maybe are trying to celebrate Christmas by silence and meditation and fasting and wearing you know, potato sacks and just being miserable. And instead of a Grinch, you have a big, jolly, fat man with a, with, a, with a belly laugh who comes to the Who's and says, what are you doing? Uh, you don't, this isn't celebration. You need ham and wine and lights and loud toys that need batteries and those plastic candy canes full of M&Ms and all of these. That's how you do it. That's how you rejoice and that's how you celebrate. I know that anytime I talk about the goodness of 
of, of being men and women, the goodness that God has, has, has put together in creating us as men and women. And anytime I talk about the goodness of the created world, a few verses pop in your mind that use the words world and flesh as something that's undesirable, as something that we're not supposed to um, give thanks for or to love. Doesn't John's epistle also say, do not love the world or the things that are in the world? And of course, flesh is bad, right? The spirit is good. Uh, Galatians 5 reads, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So obviously, maybe the Gnostics were onto something. Maybe there is something suspicious about the world um, and the created order. Maybe there is something suspicious about humanity as it is, as it was created. Whenever we read these words, world and flesh, we need to do some careful exegesis and think, what world is being talked about? What is the world in the passage that we're reading? Are we talking about planet Earth? Are we talking about all of creation, the universe? Is it the world of people? Is it referring to the world of unbelief, the mass of humanity alienated from God, hostile to Jesus? Is the world the whole sphere of human culture and riches and pursuits and governments and nations? Well, it depends. They, the, the gospel writers typically use one word whenever they say world. It's a word we use. It's cosmos. John tells us in his gospel that God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son. And the word there is cosmos. God loved the world. And then the same John who wrote the gospel wrote in his epistle, he says, do not love the world, cosmos, nor the things in the world. Same word. So if I'm to be godly, then I need to learn to love the things that God loves. And God so loved the world. So do I love the world or not? Because John later says, don't love the world or the things that are in the world. Well, which is it? What, what, what am I to do? Well, what world are we talking about? God loves his creation and he loves the people he put in it. He loves it so much that he sent his son to redeem it. But there are elements of the world that we are not to love, that we are not to be enamored with. Consider, John continues, he defines the world we are not to love. And so John says in his epistle, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John, what world are you talking about? Well, he continues, he says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Okay, that's the world he's talking about. The world of unbelief, the world systems set in opposition to God. The worldly definitions of power and success, the lusts, the worldly values. And, and John continues, and that world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So John isn't saying planet earth is passing away, but rather the world of unbelief, the old world of death, and ignorance and darkness. That's the world we reject. And so context is key. In the same way, the flesh often refers not to our physical bodies, our human frame, but to our sinful Adamic nature. You're, you're already used to doing this. When, when you read the scriptures and you come across the word heart, you don't think, oh, well, we need a cardiologist to understand what he's talking about here. Uh, we're talking about the muscle in our chest, right? The one that pumps blood. That's what a heart is talking. No, no, no. You know, when you read heart in the scriptures, you know 
that is talking about the seat of your affections. It's talking about your motives and your desires and your emotions. That's what you're talking about. And so often uh, the word flesh is not referring to our physical bodies, but referencing the part of us that we inherited from Adam, the dead part of us, as opposed to the spiritual part of us, which is the gift of God's Holy Spirit, which makes us alive. So Galatians indeed tells us the flesh is at war with the spirit, but that doesn't mean your physical body is at war with the spirit of God, but that you inherited this deadness from Adam, this this sinful nature, and that's at war with the spirit. Because we also read about places, um, we read places in the Bible that refer to our physical bodies in a positive way like Ephesians. It says, husbands must love their wives like their own flesh. No man hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just like Christ does the church. So if it's commendable to love our own bodies in a way that we take care of them, and if it's commendable to love the bodies of our wives, and that cherishing is not simply okay, but it's a reflection of the image of how Christ loves the church, then there is something good and something right and something holy about being grateful for our bodies as men and women created in the image of God and being grateful for our humanity. So just like you read the word heart and you know he's talking about affections, So when you read the word world, you think, what world are we talking about? Are we talking about planet Earth? Are we talking about something else? And when you read the word flesh, you think, okay, is that my body? Or is that the part of me I inherited from Adam that's at war with God's spirit? And from there, you can conclude that while the Bible, in fact, corrects godless idolatry and lust and materialism and and fulfilling the desires of the dead part of us that inherited from Adam. All of that is prohibited. All of that is corrected. All of that is under judgment. The Bible at the same time does not encourage us to hate our bodies or to hate the created world and instead shows us that there is a proper, ordered, godly love of creation and a godly gratitude for our role as created beings. Why are we talking about this? Why are we doing this on Christmas? Why are we doing theology on Christmas morning? Come on. I wanted to hear about a baby, and I wanted to hear about shepherds, and something about a drummer boy somehow working in there. I don't know how that fits in. Uh, why, Why are we doing this? Because there's a reason. The accuser wants you to be dissatisfied in God's creation And he wants you to be dissatisfied in your bodies and to not give thanks and to not enjoy his good gifts. And for you to have these shriveled little hearts that shrink back from full-throated rejoicing in the word made flesh because Gnosticism abounds at Christmas because Satan and the world of unbelief would rather you forget about the incarnation and all of its implications. Just make this about Santa and snowman and, and reindeer. Make it all about that. Forget the incarnation. But if we reject all of that and understand what Jesus is done in the incarnation and how God the Father is redeeming all of creation and redeeming humanity, then you and I are liberated toward a proper appreciation for and a use of God's good gifts in the world. God's good gifts without a proper gratitude and worship of Jesus is empty. A a shopping cart full of tinsel and and wreaths and and gifts and ham 
Apart from Jesus, it's just uh, pageantry to go to hell in, apart from Jesus. But with Christ, with Christ, it is good and it is right and it is salutary. We don't have to hate things. We don't have to worship things or to be enslaved to them. But in Christ, we take them up. We use them, we give thanks for them, but we're not enslaved to them. We put them down and we give thanks to God in all things at all times because Jesus as king is enthroned over the material world. He is our head and so we have authority and dominion over it as well. It's this kind of perspective that we bring to Christmas, which is why we have uh, such, a, such a big, full approach to the celebration of Christmas because Jesus took on human flesh, which is a demonstration of his love for humanity. He doesn't love theoretical men and women. He doesn't love some perfected image of man. He loves you and he loves me and he loves our neighbors. And following that, if we're to be Christ-like and if we're to live in the light of the incarnation, we don't retreat into some Gnostic individualism thinking that somehow our asceticism, denying the enjoyment of good things, that will somehow preserve us from corruption. We don't accept the lie that gift giving and feasting is somehow this contribution to our national problem of greed or gluttony. God is a gift giver. God gave himself to us. Jesus reigns over us and gives good gifts to men. God, our father, satisfies our mouth with good things. He gives oil and bread and wine. So if we are to be godly, if we're to be like him, we are givers as well. We give ourselves to each other. We give ourselves to um, others. I exist in my body and have been given this body and whatever gifts God has given me so that I can give it to you, not so I keep it, but so I pour myself out for you. And so, so have you. God uses his creation. He uses created things to show his good favor to us and to demonstrate his grace to us. He uses water and bread and wine to unite us to Jesus and to renew our covenant and to feed our faith. He takes material stuff. God takes stuff and blesses you with it and feeds your faith with it. So, it's impossible to worship God inside our heads only. The incarnation is our signal to do the best we can with what God has given us. Don't, don't, I'm not telling you, hey, you need to go into debt. You need to run up credit cards. Be wasteful. No, that's not what I'm saying. But do break out the good stuff. Don't hold back. Don't shriek back in fear of overdoing it. We have these seasons of feasting and rejoicing to remind us that whatever else is going on in the world, or whatever else is going on in our lives, God is good and evil doesn't get the last word. I want to give you one little um, uh, verse from uh, Ezra, I'm sorry, Nehemiah. In the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, times were hard. Uh, they, uh, their city was in ruins. The temple wasn't uh, complete. Um, the, the things, they had enemies all around. They renew covenant with Yahweh. They hear the law read out loud and the people start to cry. They start to weep. And Ezra says, stop it. Stop your weeping. This day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way 
eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. One way, and I would say the principal way, that we rejoice in God's deliverance and rejoice in our covenant with him is to eat and drink good things, to give gifts, to share what we have together, to enjoy God's good created world, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Every Christmas, there are plenty of reminders of the doctrines of Charlie Brown and of, of the Who's down in Whoville. There's plenty of false guilt. There's plenty of false piety and miserliness. But what best captures the spirit of the incarnation? In the eyes of your neighbors and your unbelieving family members and your coworkers, what best captures the spirit of the incarnation? Asceticism? Stoicism? Is that, is that what best captures it? Or is the incarnation best reflected when the people who belong to Jesus make extended, public, joyful celebration with gifts, and ham and steak and red wine and dark beer and chocolate and Thanksgiving that openly rejects both materialism and Gnosticism. And, and then not only do that on the incarnation or celebration of the incarnation, but do it again at Easter and do it again at Pentecost and do it at Ascension. And every opportunity we have to show everyone this is what it means to serve King Jesus. This is what it means when you belong to him. This is the happiest place on earth. This is the bountiful table. And boy, do we want you to come sit down at this table with us and join us here. That's the kind of celebration that is a response to the incarnation. In Jesus, God has taken on human flesh to walk the earth and redeem all of it. The Christian message is never a rejection of our humanity and it's never a rejection of the creation. The incarnation is about God fulfilling his promises to redeem everything in Jesus, to forgive us of our sins, to set us right with God, and to, to restore us to fellowship with him, and to rescue the cosmos from the dominion of Satan, and to set things right as they were meant to be, as they were created to be. And so we participate in that, not by abhorring our humanity, not by rejecting it, not by rejecting our creatureliness, or by rejecting God's good creation, but by thankful restful living uh, with full festivity and joy under his care. Let's give thanks for this in Jesus' name. Father in heaven, we thank you for all good things. Father, we thank you for the incarnation of your son. We thank you that we get to rejoice in him today. Uh, we pray that your spirit would rest upon all of us as we eat and drink and, and Sabbath and, and fellowship um, as your people uh, we pray that your blessing would be upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.